G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day, Dad. How are you doing today? Good, thanks, Rowan. Good to be with you. Good to be with you as always, and good to be with you for today's topic, because I must admit, Dad, it's a topic that I probably don't have a natural strength in, in many ways. It's something that I've probably only mainly learned a little bit more about in recent times, and it's something that I think is very important at the moment, as much as any time recently, I think. So we've called today's episode Strengthening Self-Compassion. And Dad, do you want to just give us a little bit of a brief overview? What are we going to be talking about today? Okay, and look, the thought of this topic came up when reading a recent article on LinkedIn about the differences between guilt and shame, and it reminded me of how often guilt and shame come up as problematic emotions in therapy in certain ways, but the article highlighted some differences between them. As we'll talk about, there's some constructive things about experiencing guilt, whereas when people experience shame, especially when it comes up in therapy settings, often it's very limiting and adds to a lot of distress, often without much benefit. But it's worthwhile looking at these emotions that relate to some kind of self-conscious awareness, if you like, some kind of self-critical approach, some kind of self-monitoring, if you like, that can get out of hand. And yeah, I thought it's such a relevant topic for many therapy settings or issues that come up that are worthwhile one for us to be covering. Well, it is interesting, I think, talking about it in the context of guilt and shame, because it's not something that immediately came to mind, I must admit, when talking about self-compassion. I was probably one of those people, Dad, who probably thought of self-compassion as something that was maybe a little bit fluffy in some ways and maybe a little bit just over-the-top positive and not necessarily something that resonated with me. And look, I must admit, particularly since the start of the pandemic, I might talk a little bit about that today, but there's some particular things about self-compassion which since breaking them down, of course they're involved. And even things like, for example, challenging that shame and guilt, which maybe doesn't immediately come to mind in terms of something that's even possible for us to challenge that. So I am interested to get into some of this stuff with you today. Yes, look, in some ways I think it follows on from the topic of agency. Last time, like the notion of agency is partly about looking to strive, make a difference with things, influence circumstances, even achieving goals. And one of the things is that kind of drive can sometimes get out of hand. We talked about that in an earlier episode, didn't we, on on burnout, where we talked about the drive, the soothing and the threat systems that we're going to be able to talk about more today as well. But there's this notion that if we're too driven or goal-focused or if our expectations on us are harsh or rigid, if we're not spending enough attention also to some level of self-care, if you like, or looking at some ways of calming, soothing, managing stresses within ourselves or responding to that kind of nurturing from others, then that's when it can be a recipe also for burnout, depression, as we've talked about before, but also if we get an imbalance with the expectations that we have on ourselves and not so much in the way of self-care, then we're also likely to get more caught up with problematic emotions of guilt and shame. And we will chat about, as you said, those three systems later on, but I suppose one thing that's been interesting for me, Dad, is as I said before, not necessarily being someone who... I suppose, had many strengths in the self-compassion area, I'll put my hand up. I suppose the pandemic in many ways has forced us to really think 
about that sort of stuff and about what our own personal recipe is in that way. And and that's where I think the three different systems and the interplay between the three systems are so good. Because as you said, obviously what we spoke about last week with agency, that's all such important stuff, but it does seem to relate a little bit more to that drive system. So maybe if we go a little bit too far in that direction, we don't have as much of a balance with some other things. So that's where, yeah, it would be good to unpack some of this sort of stuff today to be able to restore some of that balance. Yes, it's partly about being forgiving to ourselves and others, isn't it, when we face more challenging circumstances such as we all do around the world with a pandemic and some people in more challenging situations than others. But it does call for being more forgiving in a number of ways, allowing ourselves to be a bit flexible, maybe cutting ourselves some slack in various ways is part of it as well. And I think with all this sort of stuff, it is, again, an opportunity to reflect on, you know, what our own personal recipe is, whether we do need to make some tweaks, whether we need to be a little bit more deliberate in certain other areas. And, Dad, I am interested in this concept of guilt and how it relates to self-compassion because, as I said, not necessarily something that comes to mind immediately. And I think the reason for that is that everyone experiences guilt. It's something that, you know, without necessarily chatting about this sort of stuff – As I said before, we don't even necessarily realise that it's something that we can particularly challenge or look to reframe in a particular way, I think. Yes. Now, look, one thing I'd say as a therapist too, I think that I would have often had a more generally negative view of the impact of guilt because of how it can come up in clinical settings. And I'll mention some of those settings later on, including trauma, OCD, how it can come up. But I think in some ways I might have tended to overlook some of the more positive aspects of of guilt, which when you think about it, it's the ingredient that separates people from being a psychopath. Like if we have no guilt at all about how we treat other people, well, that's a real problem. So when you think about it, Guilt has a very constructive aspect in terms of it's taking into account our impact on other people. So it does relate to caring or consideration for others or community values or expectations in some ways. And one of the really positive things about guilt is it can encourage people to take some kind of action to atone. For example, if people feel guilty because they said something to a friend or family member where they felt hurt, then if that leads the person to apologise and atone and look to improve their behaviour, then that's a good thing. Or if someone hurts someone else in another way, Like, for example, if they broke something through being reckless and looking to replace it and to apologise for that and look to improve the situation, that's showing a consideration or care for other people and their interests. So there's something about guilt that activates a caring system or soothing system. So we will talk about how there's a drive system that looks for achievement. There's a threat system where we feel unsafe, the fight and flight kind of reactions. But there's also a caring, nurturing system that aligns with the soothing system. So through evolution, basically, that's encouraged a level of caring and nurturing for others. It's partly how a species survives better. Well, guilt can activate that caring system looking to do something for others. So that's clearly a positive thing and it's worthwhile acknowledging that and at times having constructive ways of acting on that guilt. But I'll describe some situations later on where it can get out of hand where people are maybe taking excessive responsibility, for example, for things that they're not blameworthy for. And so it seems to me a bit from what you're saying there that 
Now, we've spoken a little bit before in other episodes of the podcast, Dad, about how emotions driving us to do something in terms of causing action. And it seems to me with guilt that guilt can either cause us to look forwards in terms of going, ah, that was a situation that we didn't quite get right. What can we do and what can we put in place going forwards to fix that and make sure that we don't end up in this situation again? But then if we almost sit with guilt and we can almost, I suppose, just lament on something that we've done and not even necessarily kind of move anywhere with it in, in that, I suppose, emotive sense, if that makes sense. Yes, that's a good way of putting it because people can get stuck on ruminating about guilt or feeling blameworthy. And I'll, I'll give some examples shortly about that. But I think as you're saying, guilt can motivate us, as you say, an emotion motivate us to atone or improve something with others. It actually can enhance our relationships in a forward-looking way. And so as with other aspects of self-compassion too, guilt can be aided by a degree of courage, if you like, or honesty with ourselves, like a degree of wisdom, honesty with ourselves about us maybe having been able to act better in a particular situation or having done something that either consciously or inadvertently did harm to others. If we recognise that and try and atone for that, that will tend to help our relationships. And that is part of that caring system. And so how do we know then if we're being too guilty about something? Because there can be situations where we're feeling guilt over a situation that we may not have necessarily been responsible over, yet we find ourselves feeling in a a situation where we're feeling guilt. How do we, I suppose, regulate that level of guilt that we're, I hesitate to use the word should here, Dad, especially talking about guilt, but at the same time, that we should be feeling in that situation. Yes, and actually looking at the word should, that's one of the ways I think in terms of guilt, the thought behind it is I should have acted differently. I should have done this and I didn't, or I didn't do this and I should have. So it's almost like the flip side of anger. Anger reactions are you should have this or you shouldn't have that. Guilt is I should have this or I shouldn't have that. Now that can get a bit rigid and black and white, Like there are going to be times that we slip up in some kind of minor way, even if we're not intending to, and if we get very harsh, as in, well, the world should be such a place that I never make a mistake, then if we're that unforgiving with ourselves, that would be unduly harsh. But where people particularly get into difficulties with guilt is where they take responsibility for something which is beyond their control or taking way excessive responsibility for a situation. And I'll mention a few examples. One is with trauma. With post-traumatic stress, people's reactions are often complicated by a sense of guilt, which is often somewhat unwarranted. And I'll give one classic example. I saw a client, a young woman, quite a number of years ago. She came home on the train. She rang her mother to pick her up from the station. And very sadly, on the way to pick her up, there was a terrible car accident and her mother was killed. She was just driving through a green light. Another vehicle came in from the side and and she was killed instantly in this car accident. Now, the young woman, her trauma reactions were complicated by the notion that if I hadn't called my mother, then she would still be alive. If I'd found another way to get home, if I'd caught a taxi or otherwise if I rang up at a different time. Now, that's a really challenging and difficult situation. And to some extent, what I've noticed in a number of trauma reactions is decent people are sometimes going to sometimes feel unwarranted guilt because they wish they could have done something different to prevent a circumstance. 
So there's almost like a human element to that. A number of people have some of this, what we would think of as unwarranted guilt. They wouldn't expect a close friend of theirs or a family member or a neighbour to feel the, the, the guilt that they do, but they say, yes, but I feel that my action led to this kind of outcome. And to some extent, I encourage people to just recognise that that is part of their caring and humanity, but just to recognise, look to step back from that reaction and notice that there's a harshness to it. It's certainly not how they would treat someone else. That's a way that guilt can complicate reactions. Another one that's even more stark is when people have been abused, sexually abused, and even though they might have been a child at the time, a number of people carry on some sense of responsibility or guilt for what happened. Maybe thinking, how did I interact with that person that they targeted me more? Not recognising that a paedophile or someone who's very exploitative or abusive can target someone just because of the availability, if you like, just because there was an opportunity to do so. It's not something particularly about that child, for example. But some people can really take on that guilt. And I think sometimes, for example, if a perpetrator of a criminal act like that does not take responsibility, sometimes it leaves more of that sense of responsibility with their victim, with the person who's been harmed. And so that's another really untoward and harsh aspect, one of the potential consequences of, for example, sexually abusive behaviour or sexually exploitative behaviour. Sometimes it can leave this harmful sense of an extra responsibility, even though that's not warranted. But there are other examples I would give, like one is of obsessive compulsive disorder. For example, I've seen a number of people who've had the exact same problem with OCD of driving along and they think that they've driven over someone because there was a bump in the road. And they felt this bump as they were driving along and as unlikely as it is, and they realise this because it's OCD, they realise that there's something distorted about the thought, but they've got this thought, oh, I might have run over someone. And they have to turn around and go back and see if they did. Now, I've actually found in a number of those situations, I'm not saying all, that people had experienced some abuse or trauma themselves in the past. And I can't help but wonder if for some people at least that left an extra sense of whether it be blameworthiness, responsibility, confusion, that somehow has got distorted into this extra sense of guilt or responsibility in a different area. Now, I haven't heard of any research on that, but I've just noticed with a number of people there's been a little bit of that background. But there's certainly that taking on untoward responsibility or hand washing. If I don't wash my hands 50 times, then other people around me are going to get poisoned and I'm going to feel guilt unless I do that. That's a really challenging problem for many people, and that's a kind of guilt, if you like, which is associated with this rumination, repeated kind of intrusive thoughts that's quite unhelpful. That's the kind of guilt that's really unwarranted. The person hasn't done anything ostensibly wrong, and yet that could be such a difficult emotion. So that's something we find clinically that we're helping people deal with. But I think that the exercises we talk about later on on self-compassion, I think that can help people in those situations too. Well, I wonder if part of the problem with feeling really guilty, particularly if it's something that's maybe a little bit unwarranted, is the level of vigilance that potentially develops when you do feel guilty about something. Because as we spoke about before, there's an element to guilt which is about 
affecting your behaviour going forward in terms of not wanting to find yourself in a situation where your interactions with someone, you may have been left feeling you know, guilty about a way that you interacted with someone or whatever it is. But at the same time, it seems if that vigilance can go a little bit too far, that's where we can get into trouble with it a little bit. And look, I must admit that I can probably speak a little bit to this from experience in many ways. And I've spoken about this a little bit on the podcast before in terms of being the last person to see my mate before he passed away. And uh, I've even used the analogy about being almost like a soccer goalkeeper in terms of it's not necessarily your fault, but you kind of have an opportunity to kind of stop it. And no, I even analyzed that statement. There's, I suppose, a level of guilt that kind of comes with that. And it's probably something that you don't necessarily, you know, find a way to just kind of get over quickly. It's probably a process that I'm still going through in many ways. But one of the things that's really resonated with me about that is I remember someone saying to me once, you know, what, basically what would you have to do to be in a situation where, you know, you, you're going to be kind of vigilant enough to be able to pick up certain things? And, you know, at the end of the day, if you're overvigilant about certain situations, as horrible as they are and, you know, as much as you might want to avoid them, if you're too vigilant about that happening, it affects your quality of life in other areas. But to me, it, it, it really is that sense of, I suppose, vigilance in terms of what we said before about using guilt as a motivator to change our behavior, to not find ourselves in a situation where our relationship with someone is affecting how we feel in such a negative way. Yes, I think a number of um, astute observations there about vigilance. I mentioned something about that shortly, but I think that situation, as you mentioned with your friend, it tends to be sensitive, thoughtful people who have that reaction all the stronger. So people who do care about others, and I think that's part of this wish. I wish I could have done something to prevent that. And just like the woman who called her mother to pick her up from the station, I think these things also confront us There's only partial control we've got over like almost any aspect of our lives. We'd love to think we have full control. And one of the challenges with PTSD, post-traumatic stress, is there circumstances that can intrude in our lives where, for example, someone could go on a nice kind of outing to a park and be assaulted and end up with brain damage by a stranger they didn't know inexplicably. Look, how do we make sense of that? So for a period of time, the person might think, well, why me? What did I do to attract that kind of attention? It might have been nothing. They might have been in the wrong place at the wrong time. And unfortunately, harsh things can happen, including difficult things can happen to good people, which was apparently the reason behind the fairy tale, Little Red Riding Hood, was to try and help children at a time of a plague learn that you might be a good person, but in a sense, you could still end up being eaten by a wolf or you could still end up dying from the plague, in other words. So this is one of the harsh challenges of life. But getting back to the vigilance thing you mentioned earlier, where I think this most commonly comes up is with domestic violence. It's one of the harshest things with domestic violence because it leaves the person who's suffering from it in a situation of looking to gauge, gauge the other person's reactions or how they're going to react this evening. What's the look in their eyes? Uh, Have they been drinking? How much have they been drinking? Or what's their tone of voice? And, oh, I need to walk on eggshells to manage this situation. It's a really unwarranted, unfair way of putting the responsibility on the person who's harmed in that situation rather than the person who's being abusive. And so that's where at times people in domestic violence situations can again feel this unwarranted guilt 
It's like, oh, I wasn't vigilant enough or I didn't do enough to prevent that when unfortunately people can sometimes be stuck in a very difficult situation where someone else is not taking responsibility for their behaviour. That's the person who should be feeling more guilt and looking to do something to improve the situation. Well, let's get on to maybe talking about shame now, Dad, because we spoke about guilt, some of the, the positive elements of guilt and maybe where it can go too far. Shame doesn't have as many positive elements to it, does it? Yes, I think that's the thing. Shame has many downsides and often not just unwarranted but very intense and crippling at times to people. But again, if we think back to shame, it's looking at these three systems. The drive system where we look to achieve goals. So that's driven by dopamine, if you like. When we have a goal, we anticipate achieving something or anticipate some reward, you get a hit of dopamine, in a sense, from that. So it's the drive system. Then there's the threat system, fight, flight, freeze, and submit. So the threat system, which clearly through evolution has helped animals and humans survive, but the threat system is partly mediated by serotonin. When feeling less safe and more threat, there's less serotonin. When we're feeling calmer and safe, more serotonin. That's what drives that system. But then there's a soothing system. And the soothing system where if we do something like have a warm bath or you do something which is pampering, but also receiving support or nurturing, caring from other people, a cuddle, a hug, warm words of social support. This is driven by oxytocin like a cuddle hormone, and also by endorphins that alleviate pain. So that's part of it. If, if we're feeling pain, emotional, physical pain, a child hugged by the parent or once you mentioned if someone was hurt, if, if it's you know, rubbed there, will rub you better, that kind of thing. That actually can make a real difference to the person feeling calmed and soothed. It can alleviate some of that pain and distress. So that's another system. What tends to happen with shame is it activates the threat system. So what's happening is the person, rather than say guilt where you're thinking about your impact on other people and maybe looking to do something to improve that, with shame, it's still a kind of self-conscious, self-monitoring emotion or self-critical emotion, but it's about where the person feels they stand in relation to others and others' view of them. It's basically the notion of others maybe viewing them less of counting less to others, being viewed as less. So the experience, the emotion of shame can be like wanting the ground to open up and swallow you whole or hiding under a rock or covering your face in some way. They're shameful kind of reactions, not wanting to be seen. And it's partly the pain of experiencing oneself as lesser in some way, as smaller, as lesser, as not counting so much. And so often what's happening there is there's this sense of threat, but there's not so much of the soothing system coming in. There's not so much of that nurturing and soothing, including there's not much self-care or self-nurturing or self-soothing coming in. It's interesting hearing you describe that there. I suppose it's a little bit of an aside in some ways, but I suppose what comes to mind for me is when we tell people, you know, you should be ashamed, it's, it's quite a hectic thing to say in some ways, I suppose. Uh, maybe a more constructive thing was, you know, you should feel a bit guilty about that. It's, yeah, when you lay it all out like that in terms of what shame is, like what we're saying is, you know, you really need to to really look in the mirror and recognise that you're 
actions are having an effect on people. So that's uh yeah, comes to mind as as being quite an intense thing to say to someone. Yeah, that's an interesting observation. I suppose that when someone feels like saying that, you should be ashamed. People will tend to say that if they feel that the other person is not atoning, not taking responsibility. And so maybe it's a stronger way of putting that. But I think just like you're saying, well, the world's going to mainly be a better off place if people go around feeling a sense of guilt for wrongdoing or harm to other people, not so much from a sense of shame and hiding away. And I know there can be an element of shame too, which I suppose a little bit like guilt in some ways can be really complex and difficult because in many ways we don't have a choice, I suppose, over times that we feel shame. And a little bit like guilt, there are times, aren't there, where I suppose based on, you know, again, pretty kind of nefarious things that happen to us, I suppose our development of a regulated level of shame is a little bit disrupted in some ways. So do you want to maybe talk to us a little bit about that to do with shame as well? Yes, well, look, I'll highlight the main way it comes up in a therapy situation or a range of therapy situations because this is when it can really get out of hand. And this can be also where it's difficult for people to develop self-compassion. Many of us might feel at times uncomfortable about something we've done, think that we handled something poorly, could have handled it better, made a mistake in some ways, said something that did hurt someone else, or we might have achieved on a task better that let other people down in some ways. And so some level of you know, feeling a bit bad about something you've done just shows in a sense a degree of sensitivity. And if we're honest with ourselves, if we could have done better in a certain situation, that will help. But for some people, it can be very, very intense. And I would say where we encounter the most intense shame that people experience in therapy situations is when they've been raised in a family where there was a lot of emotional abuse and neglect. Or there might have been sexual abuse and physical abuse, but often particularly emotional abuse and neglect. If you think about it, a child being raised in a family, if there is significant abuse and neglect, it's kind of like saying, you don't count so much. You're not so important. Oh, you're so demanding. Like there's so much we have to do for you and it's a real hassle and people can get the feeling they don't belong in their family or they're a waste of space or the world would be better off without them. Now, sadly, a number of people are raised in situations that are more extreme that way. There's very significant emotional abuse. They might even be told they're a waste of space. Like imagine that if it's as direct as that. Or it could be other ways that Maybe there's just not the level of nurturing or care. The parents' involvement in alcohol and drugs. I knew a person who encountered all sorts of horrible sexual situations involving a parent when they're a child. They should have been protected from that kind of situation. There are some really horrible situations that happen. And there are other situations that might be a little bit more subtle than that, but where there's still significant abuse or neglect. Uh, dare I say, the caregivers getting over-focused on their own interests or needs or wants and not putting the children first. In a family, quite frankly, it's about putting the children first in terms of raising children in a family. The adults, the parents, they can have different kind of ways that they can like enjoy aspects of their life, even though they're caregiving responsibilities. But it's in these situations, and you see from early on, it's like someone's been raised to not be able to count on that nurturing or care. And what this does is it really disrupts people's attachment systems. So animals, humans, well, all mammals, are raised with this expectation, if you like, but responding to, looking to, 
nurturing, affection and care. That soothing system, the nurturing system that runs on oxytocin. But what if people don't get that? What if a child's needs are neglected? Any of us might be imperfect as parents, but we're looking at good enough parenting. If there are parental failures, then the parent looks to repair that in some kind of way. You don't have to be perfect, but good enough parenting. But some situations, quite frankly, it falls short of good enough parenting and there's lack of care. And unfortunately, those kind of messages can become very much taken to heart. And sometimes it's not just that the child's sort of you know, misreading into a situation. Sometimes you can see quite stark aspects of abuse. There can be other times where maybe it's a little bit more ambiguous. And so there might be a degree of interpretation involved where someone, for example, feels someone else might be neglectful towards them or whatever, but it's in the situations of more stark abuse or neglect. That's where you see not only do people find it hard then to show compassion for themselves, but also people can find it harder in adult life to connect with others where they receive from that love and compassion and care from someone else because it, in a sense, activates their attachment system, which is a threat. It encourages this notion of, oh, trust me, I'll care for you, I'm safe to be with, and the person might sort of even unconsciously think, oh, no, I'm not going to trust you. I know how this story ends up. I'll let my guard down, let myself be vulnerable, and then – I'm just used for your own purposes and you don't really care about me. You're not really interested. There's going to be a sting in the tail. And that's where some people who've had that really disrupted attachment can find it threatening. If they meet someone else who's kind and caring, it can be hard to trust that. So there's all sorts of harmful consequences of emotional abuse and neglect, especially when it's quite severe. And this is one that it sets people up to tend to have this habit of thinking of themselves in a more shaming kind of way and much greater difficulty to develop that self-compassion. Well, one of the reasons for that is probably one of the, I suppose, more central principles really to self-compassion and one of the more important things to recognise with self-compassion. And that's that, I suppose, due to survival instincts and and there are reasons for it, that we tend to emphasise threat-based emotions over positive emotions in terms of if we're in a situation where there's you know a tiny little bit of threat amongst an overwhelmingly positive situation, you know, we're, we're going to notice that threat even, you know, if it's a, a very small thing. So do you want to just speak to that notion a little bit in terms of, oh, I suppose, what we can do about that? Yes, as you're saying, it's like the bad is more powerful than the good in terms of emotions. So looking to bolster those emotions. But look, if I might, I'll still mention a couple of other clinical situations that come up before talking about the ways of bolstering that self-compassion, because there are a couple of striking examples. One is shame and depression, especially when people are quite severely depressed. Often, as we've talked about before, The main problem in itself is not just the depression, but people's reaction to the depression, often in a form of shame. So the person thinks that they shouldn't be depressed, or they're weak for being depressed, or how pathetic for being depressed. And I must admit, as we've talked about earlier on, that's an experience I had 30 years ago when I was severely depressed, hospitalised twice for depression, as I've mentioned on an earlier podcast. And at the time I was thinking, how pathetic is this? I've been a senior psychologist at a hospital, a psychiatric hospital for five years. I've been a psychologist for 10 years. How pathetic for me to be in this situation and be so 
helpless and not be able to function at all. And I was really getting stuck into myself in a big way. And actually, it took a little while for me to realize how much I was getting stuck into myself with that sort of negative self-talk. But I've seen that in many people since as well, many people who are severely depressed. And it can impact on people who are used to being, dare I say, competent, used to being in control, used to feeling they can perform the roles that they need to perform in life. It can be really, really difficult to deal with that level of helplessness or ineffectiveness, if you like, that can come with depression. But if people then have that shame on top of it, it could be so crippling because it's not really guiding the person to any kind of action or improvement or anything that can help. It's just really ramping up the threat system. So not only is the person dealing with depression, which actually activates the threat system in itself, and the person doesn't have their drive system operating, they can't achieve in the usual kind of ways, and there's often not much soothing going on with a person often being self-critical as well, but to ramp up the threat system on top of that, it just leaves the person crippled. And that's where often we find, well, that's one of the biggest things about help-seeking, isn't it? When someone crosses that line to recognise, look, I could do with some help, I'm really struggling here and I don't know how to handle that, and they look to book in to see their GP or a psychologist or another health professional and acknowledging how they're struggling, that kind of help-seeking is a very helpful counter to the shame. That's actually accepting to some extent being in that extraordinarily difficult situation and looking to be open to receiving some kind of help or care, even if the person stuck themselves. So that's one of the most important things about help seeking when people are depressed, for example, or severely anxious. It's getting past some of that shame or unfair expectations aspect. And when people come to understand a little more about their reactions, as often will happen when people have sought help, some therapy or some other kind of treatment or help for depression, anxiety, when people have sought that help, often with that little bit extra understanding, there's less of the shame, less of that threat system operating, and the person can often start to do a little bit more in terms of like physical exercise, behavioural activation, draw on supports, just do a little bit each day, start to think at least I've done that. Then there are ways that people can start to tackle the depression further. So, and I suppose as we've talked about before, one way that people are more susceptible to depression is if they have a fairly high level of perfectionism. That can be where shame can come in as well. It's interesting hearing you describe that there, Dad, and particularly, I suppose, that about perfectionism. And one thing that came to mind for me is, you know, obviously I absolutely got right into the Olympics recently, Dad, and one of the highlights for me was the Australian Boomers, the basketball team winning a bronze medal. And one of the fellows in the Boomers, his name's Matisse Tybel, and he's a guy from essentially lives in America. He spent some time in Australia growing up, so he's got dual citizenship and chose to play for Australia. But he entered the Boomers team without really knowing too many of the players, I think he maybe knew three or something, without really knowing the coach, without really knowing too much about the setup. And I remember hearing an interview with him, and one thing that really stuck out to me is that one of the major things that he said about the Boomers culture when he was coming into that team is he said, they allowed me to fail. They allowed me to make mistakes. And I think potentially coming from 
And American sports such as NBA, when it's, you know, it's all the time, it's about being the best in the world, you know, it's about being the GOAT, it's about winning rings, it's about being at the top of your game all the time and not accepting any second best like Michael Jordan wouldn't have. Well, maybe coming into a, a situation where you can make the odd mistake because, you know, we recognise that you're coming from a slightly more foreign environment than some of us. The best way for all of us going forward is for you to, you know, be allowed to make that mistake, to not necessarily get too in your face about it so that your threat system's too activated and that you're not able to think clearly enough to be able to carry on in the way that we want you to. And it just seems to me that, A, that's the way that sport's moving. It's really interesting that sports coaching has adopted so much of, I suppose, this soothing undertone to the way that information is delivered, to the way that feedback is delivered. But I think we can also use a bit of that with ourselves too in some ways in terms of if we're someone who doesn't let ourselves make mistakes, that's not necessarily as conducive to performance because of everything that you're saying. If we're getting too stuck into the shame, the the threat system's activated within us, that's not conducive to being able to perform at our best. So I think it's really interesting to hear you describe some of that stuff there and I suppose contrast it or compare it with, yeah, as I say, sports coaching, but but just that stark example, you know, the boomers are, are one of the great examples of a, a sporting culture within a team and, and have been able to develop that and all the people that have been involved over the many years. But that was one of the main things that stood out to me in terms of what was distinctive about that group is that they let him be himself to the degree that he felt so comfortable and so safe making mistakes. Yes, that's really interesting. And uh, as you're describing that, it reminds me of something that Paul Gilbert talked about. So Paul Gilbert, and we're referencing a lot of his work today from his work on self-compassion therapy, and uh, he talked about what kind of teacher would we prefer to have? One who ruled with an iron fist, cracks you over the knuckles with a ruler, talks harshly to you to try and get the best out of yourself, almost bullies you kind of thing, or another teacher who rather than working on that threat system, so to speak, like leading us to be fearful of not succeeding so we've got to you know, really perform so we don't get told off kind of thing, or do we prefer the more growth mindset kind of teacher who's encouraging, nurturing, motivating? And there's some of that affiliative, nurturing, soothing system that comes across more with that compassionate teacher, if you like. And as you're saying, where are we going to get the best from ourselves? That harsh, judgmental, driven quality or more of that encouraging, nurturing quality. And so when we think about it too, it's going to have different ways of activating our threat system. Where perfectionism is particularly difficult is if it gets caught up in evaluating ourselves compared to other people. Or how do we look to others? That self-criticism that it might be that we're seen to perform poorly, that kind of perfectionism when it's concerned about what other people think is particularly harmful often. Whereas there's another kind of perfectionism which can still get out of hand, too much of that drive mindset, if you like, where the person's going for improving their performance or growth. Now, if someone's looking to develop their skills and it's a way that they're driving themselves and it's not so much that they're concerned about how they might seem to other people, that's maybe not quite so harmful, but it still can get out of hand as well because if the person feels that they're not living up to their own standards or falling short, then it can reach a point where apart from not getting the reward and encouragement that the person might want, if it's really unforgiving, 
people are really demanding of themselves, then it can activate that threat system too. And really, like fight, flight, freeze, submit, they're not exactly the kind of reactions you want to get the best out of yourself in a sporting or any other kind of situation. Well, it's an interesting one in terms of what I think of there is there's that famous motif of the devil and the angel on our shoulder in terms of, you know, one is almost just completely critical and completely down one end of the spectrum in a negative sense. And then there's the angel on the other shoulder, which is the opposite. It's very positive. It's very uplifting and comforting. And I suppose, you know, that's a that's a, a famous motive in terms of, I think that appears in, in paintings that go, you know, well back. The one that stands out to me is an episode of The Simpsons where they do that really <laughs> well. But but that, that motif of the angel and the devil, we only have, I suppose, one kind of stream of narrative within us. So at times there's a likelihood that we're going to be our own angel in some ways and we're going to be our own devil in some ways. And it seems to me that what I'm picking up on a little bit from what you're saying there is it's important to recognise, you know, are we being, you know, maybe the devil figure? Are we being more the angel figure? How can we then maybe, I suppose, move a little bit more towards that angel figure way of doing things? Yes, and a lot of it's about a balance too, isn't it? I'm reminded of a conversation with a colleague who understands a lot about Indian culture and there's a lot about Indian philosophy as I understand as well that's looking to get a middle way with these kind of achievements. So we're not looking to aspire to be the greatest level of mastery, if you like, and then get that hubris or arrogance, but nor are we looking to be like self-denying and defeatist and helpless kind of thing. There's something of a middle way. And so these things can come up in more complicated ways, for example, in narcissism. So in narcissism, someone might be really talking themselves up and really showing off about an ability that they have and being very competitive with other people and being very sensitive to humiliation kind of thing, thinking they should be above any kind of criticism. But what's happening there is the person's getting sucked in to thinking they should be, well, you know, super or beyond angelic or something like that. They should be the super positive kind of character which is getting caught up with the hubris, the arrogance, and sometimes that's a flip side to feeling the opposite. Sometimes, say with narcissism, the person's either had a background where they've been, dare I say, butted up a little bit too much by a parent who's been maybe quite indulgent and thought, oh, you're going to be the greatest on earth and the person feels they need to live up to that or the person thinks that they are that, even worse, and that's a recipe for a lot of well, misery down the track, not just for the person but others around them, Uh, but also there can be the overcompensation for feeling unworthy. So people could have been, dare I say, raised in backgrounds again that might be dismissive or invalidating or neglectful and maybe the person's in some ways overcompensated for that by developing some fantastic skills or whatever but maybe being overinvested in the skills rather than looking at their connection with other people and positive connections with other people. So so with a number of these things, it's partly about that middle way because life is complex. We're not all good. We're not all bad. We're not perfect at this. We're not terrible at that. It's looking at some kind of middle way where we can still strive and use that drive system, but also do that with some level of balance, not just driving ourselves into the ground or over competitively with other people. I think in many ways it gets back to that recipe we've talked about with positive psychology. Using your top strengths, including your attributes and personality strengths, 
in the service of others or to the benefit of others. And that then includes showing some kindness and compassion to others. And that's where I must admit, Dad, before really getting into this topic too much, that's kind of what I thought self-compassion was in, in terms of really, I suppose, taking control of that internal monologue and that narrative that we have for ourselves in that way. But I suppose discussing it, uh, it does seem to me that it is more about the balance of the three systems. And that's, of course, one small element of it. But it is about knowing when to, I suppose, prioritise particular systems, knowing when to, you know, take the foot off the accelerator with the drive system to extend the, uh, the metaphor with that one there. And it's an interesting one, Dad, because as we were thinking about this during the week, it reminded me actually of something that came up in the Dissociation podcast. I think it was... Uh, you mentioned a gentleman who had a little exercise that he did with himself where he had a board meeting with his parts. And I actually, I got quite a bit out of that because, you know, Melbourne back in another lockdown, Dad, where the news has not necessarily been uh, the most uplifting thing in recent times. And one, I suppose, context that I kind of looked at things in is looking at these systems. We've got the drive, threat and soothing system there were some days where, for example, I was just, you know, I'd get to 4.35 o'clock and, you know, usually I'd, I'd try and go a little bit past that with work. But I just thought, look, do you know what, today, if I was to have a little bit of a board meeting <laughs> with my systems and I was, you know, going to bring them together, if I was being honest with myself, the drive system could probably say, hey, you know what, I'm ready to check out for today. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy, you know, based on what I'm getting from the threat system, uh, I'm happy to hand it over a little bit to the self-compassion and, and or to the soothing system, sorry, uh, maybe for the rest of the evening and, and maybe we don't need to put as much energy into other things outside of maybe relaxing and, and restoring our energy a little bit that way. But for me, I suppose going through that exercise of, of really just distilling down, you know, all right, what are the, I suppose, imperatives of each of the systems in this situation? I'm not necessarily feeling like I could just sort of, you know, charge through it at 100 million miles an hour. So I'm just going to take a little bit of a step back. And what would, for example, each of those systems almost be telling me in terms of what their influence is at the moment, whether or not they need to maybe take a little bit of a backseat going forward. And for me, that was just such a helpful exercise to be able to contextualize a situation when maybe, for example, my soothing system needed to put his hand up a little bit more. Maybe my drive system needed to take a little bit more of a backseat and, you know, maybe a threat system mediates when it is time to do that. I really like that, Rowan. I think that's a really creative and practical way of looking at exactly what we're talking about here. Because again, as Paul Gilbert says, it is about finding a balance between these systems. And they are literally different systems in our brain. So they are literally like different parts of our brain. They've all evolved to help us survive. If we didn't have a drive system, we wouldn't bother whether we had food and shelter. If we didn't have a threat system, we wouldn't be picking up danger from maybe an attacking tribe or a thunderstorm to take shelter or something like that. If we didn't have a soothing system, there wouldn't be the kind of nurturing that mammals have in raising their young or the different kind of soothing activities that we do to calm down. So it is about getting a balance between these evolutionary systems. And I like your way of embodying that, if you like, thinking, well, if we think of these as parts, if you like, in a boardroom 
room meeting and they're all sort of saying something about why we should take them into account, yes, getting a bit of a balance that way. Hey, when you finished about 4.30 at the end of the day, is that when you started to watch uh, Ted Lasso you've been tuning into <laughs> later? You've been so, um, had a bit more time for that, have you? I must admit, Dad, that's been my uh, my method of, of self-compassion this week, the last couple of days. It's, uh, yeah, I might mention that a little bit later. It's one I definitely do recommend because it's uh, been getting me through anyway at the moment. But um, Good one. Dad, uh, let's move on a little bit because uh, I understand that maybe there's some behaviours that can make a little bit of a difference to, I suppose, developing our level of self-compassion. If we look at maybe developing our level of self-compassion now, what are some of those behaviours and maybe even, say, attributes that we can look to develop to help us in that area? Okay, when it boils down to it, it's doing anything that's kind of self-caring or anything that might be giving to ourselves, nurturing to ourselves, including drawing on our social supports. We know that's one of the best things that we can do. But in a sense, if we think of what we might do, maybe it's partly drawing on a certain kind of attitude or mindset to guide us. And I like the way that Paul Gilbert talks about different kind of attributes that go with compassion. And this is applying compassion to other people or applying it to ourselves. So any way we show a level of sensitivity, any way we show a level of sympathy, it also involves a degree of courage in acknowledging feelings like if we're struggling or recognising if someone else is struggling or recognising if someone's acting in a way that's actually not in their interests the way that they're drinking or they've reacted with anger or they've been uncaring in a certain way or they're not looking after their health or they haven't seen a doctor when they're ill or something like that. Sometimes it takes a degree of courage to also confront someone else about that or even acknowledge to ourselves if we're struggling at a certain kind of level, being honest with ourselves. So a level of empathy, being non-judgmental, but still being prepared to take some responsibility. For improving things. It's not in terms of being non-judgmental, don't think one way or another whether what we're doing is good, bad or indifferent, but it's looking more at taking some responsibility in a caring way. So in other words, caring for well-being, for our own or others' well-being. Now, anything that we do that allows for or draws on that sensitivity, sympathy, empathy, that non-judgmental care side of things, then that will be self-caring or that'll be self-compassionate. So I think one of the main things that we start off with is notice our thoughts, notice our self-talk. What's the quality of our self-talk? If, for example, if we are feeling more tired at the end of the day or feeling we're not being so productive, what if we think we have slipped up in some way? We were going to do some exercise that day we didn't get around to do or we cut a corner or made a mistake in some way. What's our self-talk like? What's the tone of it like? Is it that real harsh, demanding, judgmental thing? Or is it allowing ourselves a bit of slack or realising that we've slipped up in some way but we want to improve it in some way? I think that's one of the ways of starting our self-talk and also looking in our routines that we have. Do we have inbuilt ways in our routines of showing some level of self-care Do we build in something which is like a a tension reduction method? Exercise is good for that. But do we do something like um, yoga, meditation, massage, or even deep breathing, slow breathing exercises? We've talked in the past about having some kind of arousal management technique. So routines that allow for a level of self-care, 
but also the way we talk to ourselves as being key. But are there things that we build into our everyday life that shows some level of self-caring? And I'll, I'll mention later on some of the other exercises that Paul Gilbert would recommend. Well, let's actually have a chat about some of those exercises, Dad, because I think they can be really helpful in terms of, I suppose, strings to the bow that we can add to, I suppose, add to our level of self-compassion and develop our self-compassion in a way. And, you know, I mentioned before that, you know, this is not necessarily something that, uh, that, that I probably have a natural strength in in many ways. And I think part of the reason for that is that a lot of these exercises, you know, maybe being sort of maybe a young bloke in many ways, maybe a little bit defiant about certain things, I felt that they were in many ways a little bit contrived and maybe hadn't experienced quite the benefit from them as much. But I mentioned it before, one of the fascinating things that I've found recently is just the level of adoption of some of these principles. For example, in elite sport, Ash Barty, to me, is one of the most self-compassionate people in the whole world and embodies so much of this stuff. Even, for example, high-level entrepreneurs, so many of them have these, you know, what I would may have once considered to be contrived practices that they do for themselves and they preach the benefit of it. And they talk about how much of an impact these small exercises and practices have on their ability to perform, whether, as, as I say, whether that's in a sporting context, a business context, whatever it is. So let's maybe have a chat about what some of them are, because I think if we can add a couple of these to our bow, even though, you know, it might seem a little bit contrived, it may not necessarily be something that we immediately resonate with. Well, if we can, I suppose, push through to the point of putting some of these in place, there's so many countless examples of people, whether, you know, I can preach to that a little bit, Dad, but whether they be, you know, really successful people in the world who do use this sort of stuff in that, I suppose, distilled way. Yes, well, actually, as you've described that, that leads me to want to highlight something in particular when you mentioned about this idea of contrived. Often what works the best is our own recipe, what means something for us. And I'm going to mention a brief example here. Actually, someone who listens regularly to our podcasts that I know did something very well when she reached a point of retirement. And this person knew that she could do more that actually does relate to self-compassion, actually doing things that are good for herself, doing things that she would enjoy, doing things that are nice for herself. Someone who you know, had extra reason to look to develop more of that side of things, if you like, in her life. And one thing that she did extraordinarily well is over a few months, I think, and it takes people often several months to start to adjust to retirement and look at how they can use their time well. Many people think, oh, I haven't done much today or haven't got much idea of what I'm doing. But people are doing well if they get a bit of a pattern up within about three months of retirement. But um, one thing that uh, this lady did is she came up with her own list of things that she had on a whiteboard. One of them might have been playing music, for example. And so that could mean so much more for one person than someone else. But it could be things like, having certain routines in the day that it might involve sometimes spending a certain amount of time cleaning or spending some time on that, but also having time for music. It could be having time in the garden. It could be having a cup of tea. It could be catching up with a neighbour and doing something that way. It could include, for some people, a favourite TV program. It can include, for some people, having a bath 
that they enjoy in the evening. For a number of people, it will include some kind of physical exercise, but it's people having their own recipe. Another person I know, they start the day with what they describe as contemplative prayer. And so powerful for so many years for that person who suffered with chronic schizophrenia. But along with getting up at a certain time, going for walks, contemplative prayer would be one of the most powerful things for that person. And I should add with that, when people have a certain religious faith or spiritual beliefs, people can have a sense of receiving all sorts of, dare I say, care, love from a deity, from God, if you like, the universe, whatever. When people have a sense of drawing from something much larger from themselves, we ought to acknowledge that. That's one of the ways that people who have a certain active engagement in spirituality, in whatever way, especially if it's not a punitive type spirituality, like we talked about last time, the sense of agency. People still do things to help themselves, but they get this sense of a benevolent spirit or deity that actually really helps people's mental health often and helps people be more resilient in the face of challenge or stress. So again, there can be individual recipes with it. But in a therapy context, There are a number of strategies that we use and I've mentioned about the slow breathing. Another one is people developing their imagery for a safe place. So the person imagines being in a place where they feel utterly safe and calm and at peace within themselves. It might be in a beautiful forest setting where they can still look out over a beautiful distant view with trees, the smell of earth underneath them. That might be a very safe place. For someone else, it'll be being at a beautiful beach with pristine sand, lovely blue sky, fluffy white clouds. People can imagine being there on their own or with someone else who's very caring there with them, but people can imagine this safe place that engenders these calming, soothing feelings from within. Then compassionate imagery. And actually, you mentioned to me something earlier with Ash Barty, something she specifically does. Yeah, I mentioned that podcast last week, Dad, with Ben Crow, who's Ash Barty's mindset coach. And he spoke about a little exercise of, I think he calls it reclaiming a you know positive memory, reclaiming an early positive memory. And escapes me exactly what Ash Barty's was. But for example, he'll talk with his other athletes as well, but he'll say, you know, what is a, an early positive memory for you that was yeah, really positive? And what are some words that you would associate with that? So whether it be loved, uh, connected, calm, things like this. And then when, you know, Ash is on court and when she finds herself getting a little bit distracted about things, she can come back to those words and she can come back to those images And she can come back to essentially that, I suppose, safe place that you mentioned before. And she can just almost use that as a bit of a, I suppose, grounding technique to bring her back after every point, brings her back there, fresh start, let's move forward, let's look forward and let's play the next point the best way that we can. That's a wonderful example. And I think that the way you describe that, what I got from that as well is that Ashley would allow herself to feel a certain way. That's again something that Paul Gilbert emphasises. It's not just the words themselves. It's not just a thought or an idea. It's letting yourself have the feeling that goes with that. And that's where also compassionate imagery comes in. The person can remember someone from their past who is kind and loving or who is that now? A mentor, a support, a parent figure. And remember how that person spoke to them or comforted them 
or soothe them or encourage them. So really conjure up an image of that person and imagine they're with you, that image, that person there with you, and feel that support, feel that love, feel that care, feel that kind of support. So that compassionate image can be powerful. Another exercise can even be writing a compassionate letter. So you can write a compassionate letter to yourself, appreciating the efforts that you made in a certain kind of way, appreciating your qualities, noticing what you tried to do to help in a certain situation, even if a difficult situation turned out differently from what you wanted. Writing down about still the care that you took, what you looked to do, empathising with yourself, that kind of circumstance. And then there's a particular technique that we use that can often be very powerful, a two-chair technique where the person engages with their critic. So in one chair might be an often very judgmental, harsh critic expressing the criticism of the person. That's pathetic what you did. You know, how did you expect that to be good enough? You know, you're always hopeless with this, that, and the other. Look, actually, many years ago, as I mentioned, 30 years ago when I was depressed, we used that two-chair technique, and I was just stunned and struck by the level of harshness of that self-critic. I hadn't been aware of how harsh it was. But when you're confronted by that, there's some capacity to then respond, to engage with that, but in a way that, dare I say, stands up to it to some extent. But you can also, in a two-chair exercise, look to have some compassion for what might be behind the self-critic's motivation. It might be dealing with some sadness or loss, or dare I say, not dealing well with some sadness or loss that's leading to this harsh criticism. It might be fear. It might be fear that if you're not, say, motivated or driving yourself solidly on for something that it won't be good enough in some way, whether it be in other people's eyes or what you're meant to achieve. But there can be some motives behind the self-critic as well. Different if the self-critic is like a repeat of the words of an abuser. That's different. Then you act full on harshly to that. Then you uh, fight back, so to speak. You say, look, I've had enough of you. That's enough. You are no longer part of my life. I will not listen to you. I will not put up with you. You are not part of my life. Get lost. When dealing with a perpetrator or an abuser, then it's worth being very strong and not necessarily having to engage with that so much. But often the self-critic has distorted kind of motives, if you like, maybe thinking it's doing something, but it's not really. And then it might be more standing up to that, but in a more compassionate way. This isn't helping. I will not listen to you. That's not what I need. I can do with more encouragement. I can listen to that, but that does not work. You are past your use-by date something along those kind of lines, and not just repeating then the patterns that have been picked up from the past. And I imagine as well, part of the thing about all of those exercises there is that it's not necessarily something that's going to, for example, you can click your fingers and everything's going to change in a second. I imagine it would be something that you look to develop tools as you go along and strengthen those tools as you go along. It's not necessarily something that you can just immediately pick up. I really like what you're saying there because that's a very compassionate approach to be forgiving with oneself, to be patient with oneself. For example, when we're using those two-chair exercises and maybe the self-compassionate imagery to strengthen, to bolster the person's self-compassionate side, 
Often we do that when people have had very harsh childhood environments and experiences and so they haven't had that modelling for the care and nurturing. So yes, that means that change will be slower, it'll be more gradual and when we're dealing with the larger, more challenging aspects in life or people have had, dare I say, a a much more challenging circumstance to deal with or longer-term difficulties to deal with, yes, time to be forgiving, time to be compassionate about that. As you say, let things shift bit by bit, gradually being patient with oneself. That's often one of the most caring things that you can do. I heard a great analogy during the week, and it was actually from a cricket writer, Dad. It was, his name's Crash Craddock. He's one of my favourite cricket writers. You and got that in because the alliteration, didn't you? <laughs> no, it's probably a good example it's too. It's a very yeah. fun name to say. Robert Craddock's his actual name, but I've never called him Robert in his life. But anyway, he had this analogy talking about a cricket coach uh, that, you know, the sport of cricket in many ways, it's a team sport, obviously, but there's also an element to which it's an individual sport as well because within, you know, the team environment, you're either a bowler or a batter, you perform your, uh, I suppose, skill and, and contribute towards the team in an individual capacity in the game of cricket. And he was talking about the idea that cricket coaches, as opposed to, for example, football coaches where, you know, they're really involved in the strategy of the team. I, I suppose they set the game plan in many ways. They dictate so much about the way that the team plays. Well, he was talking about cricket coaches having to be more like you're steering a boat down a river. So you can make subtle changes to the direction of the boat, but if you make too much of a change too quickly, are well, you going to go off course? Are you going to crash into the bank? Are you going to lose control of the boat? I wonder if it's a little bit like that in a sense of maybe having to make small corrections as opposed to uh, one giant correction. I really like that idea. I think that's very realistic because if people are looking at small and gradual change, then that's usually achievable. If you think that a change that you're looking for is not achievable, well, make it half as much or even smaller. Then you get to even like a little grain of change and that might be something that you can do. So I really like that idea and I think a lot of therapy, when people are dealing with challenging situations, a lot of what you're looking at is nudge factors. For the person picking up ways to nudge their behaviour or reactions or thinking in a different direction, not wholesale changing it, you know, a person who has that obsessive compulsive thought that I've just run over someone in the road, I'm not going to say, oh, that's not realistic, don't think that. Well, as if that's going to work. But maybe the person can apply some different kinds of, again, self-compassionate strategies, but also maybe gradually cut back on that kind of behaviour. So making incremental change is part of it. Yes, often I think we're nudging our behaviour in a certain direction. We're not looking to eliminate it, control it. We're not looking to master our reactions. It's a coping approach rather than a mastery approach. And Dad, you mentioned Paul Gilbert before. I think we're, we're getting towards the end now, but it'd be worth mentioning, for example, something that Paul Gilbert talks about in terms of the ways that we should look to develop our self-compassion. Do you want to mention a little bit about that now? Yes, well, first of all, he talks about some general characteristics for developing our inner compassion, so our capacity for compassion. And he talks about the elements of being wisdom, so an understanding of life and things that happen, looking to be realistic, strength or courage, that's courage and honesty with ourselves about whether there's something that we could improve, but also at times having the courage to 
Again, point out to someone else if they are acting in ways that aren't so helpful to them or others because that's well leading to harm and it's compassionate to look to reduce that harm. So courage, but warmth, kindness, being non-judgmental but still looking to encourage change where that's due or where that would help. So, yeah, those are general characteristics. That's the general compassionate self, if you like, those qualities, but also showing compassion to others. And there's one example of that. I think that we might be able to find a link to a meditation called Loving Kindness Meditation, one used by Barbara Fredrickson. And it's where you, for example, think of someone that you care about and you can, again, slow breathing, close your eyes, get in a comfortable situation and you think, may you be well, may you be happy, may you be free of suffering. Now, it's one thing to think that about someone we care about, but we can also think that to an acquaintance, a stranger, or even someone we don't particularly get on with. So that's the notion of developing compassion to others. Kind acts. So random acts of kindness can be part of that, but doing something thoughtful for other people is that side of things. Then receiving compassion to others, being open to kindness from others. And part of that, especially when people have had abusive relationships in the past, I think particularly letting oneself be discerning, choosing people that you develop friendships with, more to be open to friendships where people show it's two-way. They ask how you are as well as the other way around, that kind of thing. Where you meet with someone, you feel good after you've caught up with them rather than feeling like crap, so to speak. But certainly noticing different ways that other people do show you kindness as well and then this is a lot of what we've been talking about today, showing compassion to yourself, which includes, like say, positive self-talk, treating yourself as though you're a friend. Basically doing something which is soothing, supportive to yourself, treating yourself as though you're a friend, that compassion to yourself. I think that's such an important one, and and particularly with, I think, perfectionism as well, because you know, I'll, I'll put my hand up. I've been in certain situations before where, you know, someone says something like, now, would, would you treat a friend like that? You know, in terms of talking about your self-talk and, you know, there's so many situations where maybe you wouldn't. And, and I think that's, uh, it's important to recognize that, that, well, if you're not going to treat a friend like that, why would you treat yourself like that? Yes, and actually that's a general credo, treat yourself like a friend that comes from, say, Kristen Neff, who's written about self-compassion and who has a TED Talk, I believe, on self-compassion. It's one of the most viewed TED Talks. But she talks about three elements of self-compassion. This is a good way of simplifying it. First, acknowledge when you're struggling. Second, that's part of common humanity. Any of us might struggle, and certainly many people might struggle in a similar situation with similar background experiences and all the rest of it. And then thirdly, do something to help yourself. Do something self-soothing. Do something caring to help improve the situation. Those things would be to treat yourself as a friend, acknowledge you're struggling, recognising the common humanity, and then looking to do something to soothe yourself in some way. And I think that just as one final point, it's probably something that I must admit, like I've, I've learned a lot more about in recent times, and that's the notion of having a compassionate self-narrative. And I think with, for example, things like COVID, which can completely change the course of people's lives and, and directions, whether it be in a professional sense or where they're living or, or relationships, 
I think we can almost get caught at times into having this kind of grand narrative for ourselves that we don't even necessarily recognize, we don't even necessarily challenge it, and it can lead us to be so unself-compassionate in many ways. It can lead us to, to not be self-compassionate. And, you know, I think of certain situations where, for example, I've got some friends who are very, very good at sport. And for a large period of time in their life, it may have seemed like they were going on to play sport and maybe they had good relationships with people in their life that was slightly, they felt in a certain way based on that. And I think it's something that they potentially still kick themselves about, that they didn't fulfill this narrative that they had set out for themselves. And I think it's not necessarily just with sport too. I think if I'm really honest with myself and I look back at times in my maybe early 20s, even mid-20s, there'd probably have to be three of me to kind of, I suppose, to do all the things that I wanted to do. And, and there's been times maybe where, you know, you get stuck into yourself and not prioritising something or not doing something. But you prioritise something else and you did something else. And uh, I suppose there can just be this conflict that comes from from maybe decisions that you make on a smaller level. Well, if you do have this kind of grand narrative for yourself and, and maybe these smaller decisions, although necessary at this smaller level, are taking you away from it, maybe something completely outside of your control has has stepped in the way, whether it be an injury, whether it be something like COVID and, and the effect on your business or something like this. But I think if we can recognize at times when we do have these slightly oppressive self-narratives in the sense that they're not very self-compassionate, they do expect too much from us at times, then it's a whole nother layer to look at self-compassion. I think beyond just that, I suppose, surface level self-talk in terms of being positive with ourselves, it's a whole nother extra layer of how we can be positive with ourselves. Yes, I think that's very insightful because what I notice as a therapist, when you hear people talk about their lives and you see how people go, I think one of the key things is in well-being, people having, in a sense, the most positive, within balance, the most positive view of themselves and their lives and the nature of their lives and their life narrative that still fits the facts. We're not talking about just completely distorting one's view, but still being able to see it in a relatively positive or constructive or even accepting way. I think there's a very important point that you're making, especially for young people. And Martin Seligman talked about this when he talked about agency. He said with the pandemic, some of the people who are most affected and challenged by the pandemic are young people, look, dare I say, like yourself in your 20s. He said people at that expansive stage of life where normally your life would be expanding in different ways, whether it be in terms of work and relationships or uh, feeling like getting ahead in a number of ways. And as he said, this has really been interrupting people's lives for about a year and a half now. Now, that's a very significant kind of impact when people are normally expanding, if you like, whereas if people are at a different stage of life, dare I say like myself, to some extent, you're kind of adapting and keeping on going in certain ways, but it's not quite the level of expectation for growth or change that young people would have. So having to factor that in compassionately, I think is a really important thing. And for that, I'm reminded of what Robert Lay talks about when he talks about a tragic view of life. And Robert Lay, clinical psychologist, described that a tragic view of life is not inconsistent with positive psychology or a hopeful outlook. And it's to do with this. A tragic view of life, bad things will happen. I'm going to die. You're going to die. Everyone's going to 
die. Bad things are going to happen. There are going to be traumas in life. They're going to be things out of our control. They're going to be upsets. That's part of the nature of life. It involves loss. And yet there are things that make life worthwhile. So a whole lot of what positive psychology is about is what makes life worthwhile despite the challenges that we have. And when we think about what makes life worthwhile, well, some of it's going to be how we balance those three systems, you know, the drive, the soothing, the threat. And I think it's such an important point at the moment, Dad, as much as any time. You mentioned that example before that Martin Seligman mentioned for young people, and I think that's so true. And that's in many ways just an example for young people. I think at almost every age group we can potentially talk about a unique set of challenges that every age group is facing that's involved with the pandemic at the moment. And the notion that really comes through for me is a little bit what I spoke about before in terms of that like board meeting idea, in terms of the fact that we've got more demands on us at the moment, whether it be in a whole range of ways, but it does give us an opportunity to reflect on what our own balance is. And to me, if there's an overwhelming notion from the pandemic, it's that, hey, you know, like the gloves are off in some ways in terms of like, you know, life's that life's taking the gloves off a bit. And I think we maybe need to reflect and maybe spend a little bit more time at the moment, maybe be a little bit more deliberate about finding whatever that balance is for the three of those systems there. And and one thing that I found particularly helpful for me, Dad, is is just recognizing on the days when, you know, maybe it is a little bit tougher. Maybe the news is, you know, a little bit worse than the day before and and you feel it a little bit more. If you can look ahead to the next day and and further prioritize that level of self-care, that level of self-compassion, that soothing system. For me, it's, you know, getting a walk early in the morning and going for a walk and sort of just seeing kind of the city come to life and then you get back and you've got plenty of time before work and you can watch, you know, the news, all this sort of stuff. Like I love doing that. And if I can do it in a way where I've prioritised it from the day before, well, it almost gives that kind of extra oomph. And I think whatever it is, you know, you mentioned Ted Lasso before, you know, it's maybe not one for the little kiddies, but, geez, like I recommend that so highly in terms of just a really nice positive distraction. It's super silly. But the other thing about it, Dad, is that all of the principles in it are actually quite sophisticated. You talk about some of the sporting principles, some of the coaching principles in it are quite sophisticated. Some of the even self-compassion principles that are in it, they're quite sophisticated. And so it's this silly presentation of some of these ideas. But at the same time, it's not pointless. And I think there's certainly stuff that we can take from that. And whether it's, you know, Ted Lasso, you know, whatever it is at the moment, I think, you know, we should give ourselves a little bit of license to kind of go, you know what, maybe we've set ourselves up in routines that were pre-pandemic routines. And as we've spoken about, you know, today, it's, it's about finding a balance with this sort of stuff. So if we were to recalibrate ourselves for where we're at now and, you know, we can, we can further recalibrate again next week if we want to go back to having the, uh, the pedal to the metal, so to speak, in, in the drive system sense. But at the same time, I think with all that we've spoken about today and with the opportunity that we're presented with at the moment and even sort of outside pandemic times, I think just feeling down and and I always have this saying that, you know, whenever you hit rock bottom, well, you know, it feels awful at the time, but hey, that's rock bottom and you know what you're dealing with and there's nothing that can come below rock bottom. So it just completely puts everything out in front of you and then then you can put steps in place to actually manage with it and deal with it and make sure it doesn't happen again. I like that, Rowan. I like the way you said that with passion. 
<laughs> well, thanks for that, Dad. As always, we'll put up the resources for today's episode. Uh, this is a good topic in terms of some of the resources. Dad, you mentioned the other podcast episode that we've done, Drive Soothing and Threat, Seeking a Synergy of Systems. We've got a couple of handouts as well about self-compassion, but also, as you said there, in terms of Paul Gilbert, Christian Neff, there is a lot of good information out there about self-compassion, which, you know, as I said, Dad is someone who didn't necessarily have a, a natural bent in this area. I can certainly vouch for them resonating, having understood a little bit more about the benefit of this for me. Good then, Rowan. Look forward to the next topic.